Good morning, folks. Uh, warm welcome to you. If you keep that passage open, uh, we're going to be in that text this morning, uh, just those very opening verses of the Bible. Um, just looking down from here, I see, uh, see a few faces of people I'm not very familiar with. If you're new this morning, if you're here for a, a very first time or, or one of the first times, it's great to have you with us. Do feel at home. Sometimes I think when you drop into another church, you feel like a, a stranger at, a, at another family's gathering. That's not the case. Um, this is a, a family with um, a wide reach and with an open door. You're very welcome here. So we're beginning this new series, Richie said. We're calling it In the Beginning. We're going to study the opening chapters of the Bible uh, in the book of Genesis. Whenever we look at our Bible library slide, uh, we see Genesis is in the top row, and it's at the left-hand side. It's the very first book of the Old Testament, the very first book of the entire Bible. But then I'm going to guess that some of you maybe knew that. Yeah? Okay. Some people know that the Bible begins with the book of Genesis. The previous slide, the one, uh, or the next slide, um, the, the one that we're using as a bit of a, a theme uh, slide for this series, maybe gives us another way of, of thinking of the book of Genesis and this series. It, it evokes more the idea of the start of uh, a story the greatest, truest story ever told, this story of God's dealing with human beings. Maybe you've had that experience in school um, or in a workplace or, or even at home where you find yourself a little bit stuck with something and somebody's come along, um, maybe it's the, the teacher or a parent or a colleague, they've come along and they've said, where is it you're stuck? You know, they ask a few questions to, to find out where you're at. Where are you stuck? Which bit do you not understand? Which bit have you forgotten? They do that because if they're going to help you, they need to, they need to find out where your area of difficulty is. But quite often, whenever somebody's trying to, to help us or bring clarity to us, they'll, they'll use this phrase, well, well, let's go back to the very start. Let's go back to the very start. So if, if any of us have any questions about Scripture or about who God is or about who we are, it strikes me as a, a thing we might consider doing once in a while to say, well, let's go back to the very start. Let's just check that we got the start of the story right. So that's what we're doing here uh, in this In the Beginning series this next while. I want to warn you that um, it could be dangerous to do this. You might be saying to yourself, well, this is going to be so boring. I know this part of the story. I went to Sunday school. I heard about Adam and Eve and about Noah. There's, there's nothing new here. This is going to be a, a hard, long road um, of, of boredom. I want to warn you, that's, that's not the case. There, this, this is not going to be a boring part of God's word to look at. If you get involved in any way seriously with God or with his word, you'll find it's the opposite of boring. If, if it's boring, it's because you or I have made it boring. It's, it's probably the most dangerous thing in the world to do, to open this book and to take it seriously. Because it, 
might just turn our whole world upside down. And that's going to begin right here at the very start of this uh, Bible, this book of Genesis. We're going to come to the Bible maybe with our questions. We're going to find that it's going to ask us questions of ourselves. Boring? No. Dangerous? Definitely. If you take it seriously. Enough of the the invitation. Let's let's get going very quickly before we look at the opening verses. That name, Genesis. Um, I was going to hadn't planned Genesis. I was going to say, what's the first thing that springs into your mind? It probably puts me in a certain age group. That there's a rock group. Yeah, there might be other things for for some of you. Um, Genesis is the comes from the Greek word meaning the source or the origin and it's the name given to this book of the Bible by those who translated it from the Hebrew into the Greek so that's where we get our name from. The Hebrew Bible doesn't work like that. Um, The way they generally name a book of the Bible is by its first few words. So in the Hebrew Bible this first book is called In the Beginning. So this, this book has a couple of names that are familiar to us. It's called Genesis or it's called In the Beginning. And of course, both of them are, are great. Both of them are helpful because it is a book about, about the source, about the beginning uh, of God's dealings with human beings. Just very quickly, I want to flag up before we set off, we're not going to go through the whole book of Genesis. We're going to use one of its very natural um, breaks. There's a a way you can divide the book of Genesis where everything up until chapter 11 verse 26 tells a sort of a a pre-story, the primeval history they sometimes call it. Chapter 12 begins the story of Abraham and that takes uh, the Bible forward in a whole uh, new direction. So we're just going to look at chapters 1 to 26, these very opening words of the Bible. Okay, let's, let's get into the text. If you have the passage open before you, look at verse 1. In the beginning, God. That's, that's amazing. So this story begins with somebody or something else at the center other than us. That's a big deal for modern, postmodern, third millennia people like us. Because in our minds, the world revolves around us. In the beginning, Christoph is what life feels like. Everything in life makes sense only in reference to me. That's the psyche that we have uh, by now uh, living in a culture like ours. But as soon as you start reading this book, its danger, its subversion kicks in. In the beginning, God, before me, before human beings, before anything else, God. And that immediately takes a wee bit of retraining for us. Could I imagine a world where I wasn't at the center, but somebody else was? Actually, the word used for God here is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's a plural word. It's a word that you use for God when you want to really focus on his majesty. The Bible uses loads of different words for God, but here it's very careful. 
the, the biblical writer wants to say, this God I'm talking about is Elohim. He is majestic. He's high overall. He has no beginning. He's no end. There's no limits to his power. He's not a part of his creation. He's transcendent over it. That's a big deal in our times where many worldviews would have the, the spiritual, the, the God as part of the creation. You find the God in the creation. No, not, not in our story. The God is Elohim. He transcends. He's out of this world, infinitely greater and more powerful than anything that he creates. The writer doesn't hang about. He tells us uh, in the remainder of verse 1 that this almighty powerful God created the heavens and the earth. It's kind of like he gives us creation in a nutshell. We'll get a bit more detail in verses 3 to 31. We'll look at those next week. But there's something we need to know about that wee phrase, the heavens and the earth. That phrase has a very precise meaning. It doesn't mean that God created literally the heavens and then he created the earth as if he didn't create everything else. Think for a second the phrase uh, day and night. Uh, one of the, the new mothers in our congregation, she's talking to you and she tells you she feels like her feet, she's feeding her baby day and night. What she means by that isn't that she feeds him a little bit in the day and a little bit in the night. It means she feels like she's feeding him all the time. Day and night is used to talk about entirety. And that's how heavens and the earth functions here. Heavens and the earth doesn't mean heavens and earth. It means heavens, earth, and everything else in between, above, below, and around. Everything. There's nothing, the writer tells us, that this God didn't create. It's an audacious claim, isn't it? So already in this first sentence of the Bible, we have a God right at the center and this claim that he made everything, including you and me. I said that Genesis is going to ask some questions of us, and I want to pause there for a, a first one. In light of the profound things that we've said about God, about his power and his majesty, this is going to sound maybe a bit irreverent, but I'm going to ask it because it feels like the question modern people like us would probably want to ask. If you take this text seriously and what it's claiming and what it's teaching, one day you'll end up asking the so what question. There's a God created the heavens and the earth. So what? If God really did create the entire universe, if he created me and if I'm part of his creation, what difference does that make? What if I'm not simply a random collection of cells formed by some combination of a big bang and evolutionary processes just here entirely by accident. What if that's not true, but that at some point in time, somebody willfully decided with some sort of purpose to create me, to give me life? What difference would that make? Well, it would mean at least this would have a whole lot to think about there, but it would mean at least this, that we are in a relationship with the person who created us and gave us life. 
We'd owe something to our creator. It wouldn't be enough for us to simply say, I'm going to live on this earth and live a good life by my own standards. And that, by the way, is, is sort of modern, secular, Western morality right there. Our lives would need to be lived somehow in reference to our creator. Uh, Tim Keller helped me understand this um, in a book I was reading recently. He used a, a very simple but powerful illustration. He talked about uh, a widow uh, raising her son. He's her only son. She teaches him to live a good life. She said, son, you've got to be honest. You've got to work hard. You've got to give to the poor. And while she's raising him and teaching him that, this woman has very little uh, money available to her, very little by way of life's resources, but she spends them all and sacrifices them all to raise this son, to put him through school, to put him through university. Wind forward in the story then uh, a few years, and we have the grown son, the university graduate, and he's living just the way his mum taught him. He's a truthful person, he works hard, he's generous, and he gives to charity. But here's the heartbreaking part of the story. He hardly ever talks to his mom. Never phones her. When she calls, he rarely bothers to return her call. Doesn't make the journey to be with her at Christmas time. Usually doesn't bother even sending a card. I want you to check in your own mind how you respond to that. Does that seem okay? He's living a good life. He's honest, he works hard, and he gives to the poor. But intuitively, when we hear a situation like that described, we know that that's not okay. Why is that not okay? It's not okay because this young man is choosing to ignore the person to whom he owes his very existence. The person who sacrificed everything to allow him to enjoy the life that he's enjoying. The person to whom he owes it all. Folks, do you see it now why already this notion that God created us changes everything? If he created me, then I owe him everything. Living life on my own terms, even a good life or a moral life, it, it's not the right life. The right life is to live in a correct relationship with him who gave me life. Verse 1, it's given us the headline, kind of the summary of the first couple of chapters. Verse 2 actually goes back and gives us a backdrop to, to where we started off in verse 1. We find a picture of the world before the act of creation. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Yeah, you're going to want to hear some stuff about creation and how God created the world. We're not doing that this week, okay? I, I'll talk about that a little bit next week give some uh, suggestions about that. What's interesting for me here is that um, the writer just talks about a planet that already exists. 
Although it exists, it hasn't been formed in any meaningful way. Now, I'm not much of a Hebrew scholar. The, the number of Hebrew words I can remember from my times in college when I had to study Hebrew, I could count on the, the fingers of probably, would it take two hands? I don't know. It would be one or two hands. I don't hold that kind of thing in my head. But there's, there's Hebrew words right here that once I heard them, I never forgot them. They're the words that lie behind our translation, formless and empty. I remember them because they sound so great. Okay, I'm going to teach you some biblical Hebrew. Tohu vabohu. Isn't that awesome? Like, once you've heard that, how would you ever forget that? Okay, so let's say that together. Tohu vabohu. One more time, just I want you to remember this. Tohu vabohu. An earth that is formless and empty. There's a thing there that we can't quite see in, in those words, even the, the translation. There's something about chaos there. The phrase is used two more times in the Bible, and it talks about a world under God's judgment that, that becomes chaotic. So what we're talking about here is a world that doesn't have any form, it's empty, and it's chaotic. It's a place that cannot support life. And we can be sure of that meaning if you look at the next part of the verse. It says, darkness was over the surface of the deep. If you know anything about darkness in the Bible, darkness mostly talks about the absence of God. So here's a place that has no form, it's empty. Absence of God, sorry, let's think about that for a second. Good Friday, darkness falls for three hours. Why is that? It's because Jesus Christ on the cross is bearing our sins And God cannot be with him. God shows his absence as darkness falls. Darkness speaks of the absence of God. So what we have here is this planet without form. It's empty. It's chaotic. But the reason that it's like that is because God isn't there. God's not there, the place is dark, but, and and this is our last idea for today, verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Do you see the way when you read the story, if you've read it before, once you go back to the beginning, you see that the story's all there right in the beginning? What do we know about the Spirit of God? I'm not talking detail. I'm talking about his major moments, his biggest functions. What what does the Spirit of God do? Well, um, when was it? A year and a half ago at Christmas time, we did the early verses of Luke's gospel. And we discovered the Holy Spirit was all over those verses. So at the birth of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit's there. A couple of years ago, we did the early chapters of the book of Acts, and we discovered that there there was hardly half a chapter went by when we weren't told about the Holy Spirit. The birth of the church, and the Holy Spirit's all over that. At the birth of Jesus, it's all about the Spirit. At the birth of the church, it's all about the Spirit. At the birth of the world, who's there? The Spirit hovers over the deepness, over the waters. The image here 
is that nothing worthwhile gets born. No new life comes unless God's Spirit does it. The Spirit hovers over the waters. And the image right back here at the start of of the world is the Spirit of God hovering. He's like a, a mother bird over a brood. God is nearby. He's waiting to act with his creative powers. If C.S. Lewis was writing it in his Narnia language, he'd say, Aslan is on the move. Isn't it just amazing? These couple of verses, and already we've seen a creator God reaching into darkness, chaos, and emptiness and create something beautiful and new. It's going to take a lot more than than two verses in one short sermon even to begin to think about some of this stuff. So we'll come back to that next week uh, when we look at the remainder of chapter 1. I want to spend the last few moments dealing with a bit of a niggle I have around creation. It's all this talk about creation, it's all in the past It feels like something that God did a long, long time ago. I don't know how long ago, but sometime back there in the past, the stuff that we have read about here today, today's felt like a day when we talk about what God did to get things started way back then. It sounds like creation doesn't have a whole lot to say about my life today in my workplace or in my home or in my classroom And more is the pity. Because it would be lovely if someone could show up occasionally who knew how to bring beauty and life to places of darkness and chaos and emptiness. Wouldn't it be brilliant if we could see God creating something new in these uh, cynical, jaded, secular times in which we live? Well, that's just the thing. God's creative work isn't in the past. If there's one thing that I was astonished by this week as I spent a bit of time in these texts and got ready for today, it's that God's creative work isn't in the past. God's creative work is now. It's for here and and for today. And how do I know that? Well, it's because I read on in the story You would think, if you think about it for a second, if I asked you the question, which part of the Bible is going to talk most about God's creative work? Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2. That's what I would have been inclined to say, and I'm going to guess you would too. Actually, if you look throughout the Bible, you discover that it's in the preaching of Isaiah to God's people in the exile, that the words create and creator are used more than anywhere else. Six times in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, the, the word for create or creator are used. Sixteen times to the exiles in Isaiah. Isaiah is writing to a people who are absolutely scunnered. They're defeated in every imaginable way. They have been all their lives, all their history, the people of God. 
And yet this is the moment where it's all fallen apart. They've been taken from their country. They've been taken from their temple. Their worship's been taken away from them. It doesn't get any worse than the people of Isaiah's time and the exile. And it's to these people that Isaiah comes and 16 times in a few short chapters talks about the creator and talks about the creation that's still to come. It's as though God comes to his people and he says, this, this is a complete mess. It's dark and it's chaotic and it's empty, but I'm your creator. I created you then and I'm still your creator now. Even now I'm working to create a new salvation for you. I'm going to create one day a new heavens and a new earth. My creative work isn't in the past. It's for today. And it's for the future. And of course the whole rest of the Bible bears that out, doesn't it? That message of Isaiah. Whenever Jesus Christ came, he didn't come just to be uh, a nice guy among us, God among us. He didn't even come just to die for our sins and to save us. He came to make new people. A new creation entirely. That's why, isn't it, Paul's able to talk in these terms. If anyone is in Christ, he says, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Folks, we're in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. The easiest thing to do today would be walk away and say, creation, that's very interesting. Creation, God's creative work isn't done. It's only just begun. We're going to pause just now to pray. I'm, I'm finished. But I want us all to, to be praying in response to these opening couple of words are verses of God's word. And I'm, I'm wondering for you what, what God has uh, been speaking to you this morning. What's he been saying to you as the spirit hovers over the chaos, over the emptiness, over the darkness of our lives? Maybe, maybe God has spoken to you uh, for a first time this morning and shown something that you maybe hadn't seen before. Maybe you're somebody who hasn't bothered with God too much. You, you thought it's okay to live a good life, to be good on my own, on my own terms. And you finally come to see this morning that, no, he, he's the creator. He's the one who's given me life. He's the one who, to whom I owe it all. My life won't ever make any sense unless he's first and center. Maybe that's the kind of thing God's been saying to you this morning. Why don't you take a, a moment to talk to him about that just now? Maybe you're somebody who's believed in, your in the creator all your life. Gave your life to Jesus considerably uh, some time ago in the past. And at, this, at that point you could recognize or identify with Paul's words. Yeah, a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. There was a sense that, that really God had done something powerful and new in you. But it all seems a long time ago. 
It all seems like the creative work of God's way in the past. You'd love for the creator to recreate you somewhat today, to bring away more of the old, to bring in more of the new. Why don't you talk to him about that just now? We're going to take a moment, just now in the silence. I'm not really going to say a whole lot. I'll pray a couple of sentences to, to close things up. But let's come and talk, each one of us, to the God who's created us. Let's pray.